As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The murder of Jacqueline de Wallaby is a tragedy that has puzzled and polarized the minds of those who know it. Over the past six months, we've extensively investigated this case, trawling through files, trial transcripts, and archives, and have been conducting interviews with the people who've lived through it. It was a sensational, startling fact that a seven-year-old little girl had shown up missing from a suburban home. Something like that happening would have never crossed our parents' minds. The notion that a stranger can slip into a child's bedroom in the middle of the night, completely undetected, is surely a notion that every single parent on this earth fears. But what's even more lamentable is knowing that a child killer is roaming the street, and even more chilling... They could be someone you know. Hosted by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane, this is The Shattered Window. I'd like to thank today's sponsor, Podcorn, for sponsoring this episode. Check out sponsorship opportunities and start monetizing your podcast today by signing up at podcorn.com slash podcasters. Podcorn is an easy way to monetize your podcast. For me, it was a no-brainer. You see, Podcorn makes it super easy to work with sponsors. They have a marketplace that allows you to interact with potential sponsors, which is super intuitive to use. I've been working with Podcorn for about six months now, and I've already had five different show sponsors. With Podcorn, there's no middleman, and doesn't matter how big your podcast is, I'm able to set my own rates and work directly with sponsors. The best part is, you don't lose any of the rights to your show, and Podcorn supports you the entire time. With the marketplace, you have access to brands, and Podcorn provides transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when you have ads in your show. Click the link in my show notes to sign up for Podcorn. True Consequences is a proud member of the Borellis Podcasters Guild. Look deeper. True Consequences is a true crime and mystery podcast with stories based in New Mexico and the American Desert Southwest. I'm your host, Eric Carter Bondeen. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of True Consequences. I've neglected my patron shout outs, and I am so sorry for that. I am just the worst. I can't keep up with anything right now. But I do want to send a special thanks to Michelle, Rebecca, Jackie, Patty, 
Lane, Maria, Sonia, Claire, Rachel, and Kathy. I appreciate you all so much, and your support means so much to me. It also means that I can continue creating content for you. I cannot tell you how much your support means to me. If you're interested in supporting this one-man show, please go to patreon.com slash trueconsequences or ko-fi.com slash trueconsequences. I'm happy to inform you that there are brand new tiers on Patreon that include free merch. The $10 tier includes a free sticker. The $20 tier includes a free t-shirt. And the $25 tier includes a free mug. And even better, there's a $35 tier that includes a free hoodie. All tiers come with ad-free early access to episodes. Today's case is an extremely sad and tragic case. This is one that stuck with me in my adolescence. And I felt that it was important to tell this story because it once again illustrates how the state of New Mexico has been struggling in dealing with criminal justice issues for a very long time. I continue to say that the issues of criminal justice in New Mexico are not new, and this is another example that shows we've never been good at holding repeat offenders accountable for their actions. Jail and prison overcrowding have been constant issues for New Mexico, and as a result, lawmakers continue to try to come up with new methods for reducing inmate populations. And it seems like everything that they've tried has only resulted in more crime and more overpopulation. It's important to note that the efforts made to reduce overcrowding have yet to solve the problem. This case is the result of one such attempt to remedy the problem with overcrowding. It all started after the infamous prison riots of 1980, which resulted in brutal mass murder and torture. In 1983, the New Mexico State Legislature put into effect the Community Corrections Act. The act seemed to be a good idea from most perspectives. It would only allow low-risk inmates the opportunity to be released early based on good behavior, and it placed them into a program to help them from returning to crime. There was a budget to help them with housing and a program to assist with career counseling and job placement. But there were some caveats to the law, and I'm going to read you a sample of the law now. Quote, The department may use the fund to place individuals eligible for probation or parole in community-based settings. The department may also use the fund to place criminal offenders within 12 months of eligibility for parole in community-based settings, provided the criminal offender has never been convicted of a felony offense involving the use of a firearm. The Adult Parole Board may, in its discretion, require participation by a criminal offender in a program as a condition of parole pursuant to provisions of Section 31-21-10 NMSA 1978. In every case where the commitment of a person to the department is contemplated by a sentencing judge and the offender meets criteria for placement in community corrections, a report shall be prepared by the Adult Probation and Parole Division of the department and shall, at the request of the judge, prepare a report containing recommendations regarding a community corrections placement or complete a diagnostic evaluation containing the recommendation of the department regarding that placement including a statement that the criminal offender has been approved for a program by the state or local selection panel. The sentencing judge shall consider the report or evaluation prior to making the commitment. At a sentencing hearing, if a judge or court of competent jurisdiction determines that placement in community corrections is appropriate, the judge shall defer or suspend the sentence 
and as a condition of probation require an individual to serve a period of time in a community corrections program. The department may place an offender serving a term of probation or parole into a community corrections program if the offender meets the department's criteria for such a placement, and the sentencing judge or parole board is not ordered otherwise. It's important to note that in order to qualify for the community corrections program, the inmate would need to have not been convicted of a felony involving a firearm. There would either be a parole panel, recommendation, or a judge could decide to put the inmate in the program during sentencing. You might be wondering why I'm talking about all of this. The reason is that one of the primary suspects in this case was participating in the community corrections program prior to his involvement in this case. So keep the details of this in mind as you listen to the rest of the story. All right, let's get into the case now. March 3rd, 1996 in Albuquerque was a normal late winter day. The weather was clear and sunny, and the high reached 61 degrees Fahrenheit. There was a slight breeze in the air that meant many people would need a light sweater to keep from getting too cold. Mariah Carey and Boyce II Men's song, One Sweet Day, was number one in America. Bill Clinton was president of the U.S., and Russia was at war with Chechnya. Pokemon was introduced to the world for the first time just one month prior, and the movie Up Close and Personal with Robert Redford and Michelle Pfeiffer had just been released on Friday, March 1st. It was a typical Sunday for most. As usual, families would be going to church in their Sunday best in the late morning, and they would likely be having meals with loved ones later in the day. Kids would be playing in local parks and playgrounds, and pet owners were probably walking their dogs in neighborhood streets. For most people, it would be a normal Sunday. But for the employees of the Hollywood Video Store on San Mateo and Zuni in the southeast corner of Albuquerque, it was going to be a horrific and bloody night. Today I'm taking you through the brutal case that resulted in the death of five innocent victims. It's the case of the Hollywood Video Massacre. On March 3rd, at around 2 a.m., two armed individuals entered the Hollywood Video Store on San Mateo and Zuni with the intent to rob the store of all its cash. The two subjects had spent several nights casing the place, and they were even noticed by one of the night managers on one of the nights that they were casing in the parking lot. The manager noticed that they were watching her from the parking lot. She thought that they were very suspicious, but before she could react, the car drove off. And then, the day before the actual robbery, the two suspects came back and tried to enter the store, but the store had already closed. The male suspect was asking an employee to open the door for him, but she refused. He left angrily. The man and his accomplice came back the next day, and they were ready. They went into the store, acting like normal customers. The female suspect was told to take the manager hostage and walk her to the back of the store. The male was then going to get the other two employees, and the pair were going to tie the three of them up while robbing the store. The female was instructed to remove the VHS tape from the security recording device. Everything was going to plan, until the grandparents of one of the employees pulled into the parking lot to pick him up. The male told the female to go to the vehicle and take the grandparents hostage while he finished robbing the place. While the female was in the vehicle with the grandparents, keeping them busy and distracted, she heard gunshots firing from inside the store. The male had shot and killed all three employees in the video store. The male ran out of the store and forced the elderly couple to let him in. 
He took them hostage and had his accomplice follow them in his car. He forced the couple to drive him to a remote area on the backside of the Sandia Mountains. His accomplice followed the whole time. He was determined to kill the elderly couple, and he ordered his accomplice to do it. She claims that she resisted, and the male ended up carrying out the execution. He shot the man twice, and the woman three times with a shotgun. He had killed them, but that wasn't enough for him. He went back to his vehicle, grabbed his Tech 9, and shot the couple six more times. The female later claimed that the male tried to shoot her, but he was all out of ammo. Nobody had any idea what happened at the video store until the next morning. The opening crew members showed up at work and were surprised to see that one of the night crew workers' cars was still in the parking lot. The two openers came into a messy scene of empty cash drawers stacked up and a safe that was wide open. Then, they walked to the back and saw their co-workers lying face down on the ground with blood pooling around them. All three of them were dead. 19-year-old Zachary Blacklock, 18-year-old Jawanda Castillo, and 30-year-old Mylin Diotti. Meanwhile, the family of the elderly couple became worried when they could not reach them by phone. Two family members went to the house and noticed that the couple's vehicle was gone. They then decided to head to Hollywood Video to see if their grandson, Zach Blacklock, knew what was going on. Instead, they were met by police tape and detectives. Family described the grandparents to the detectives and explained that they would have arrived at the store to pick up Zach after his shift. Police put out an alert for the public to be on the lookout for the elderly couple and their vehicle. What they did not know was that 74-year-old Pauline and 77-year-old George McDougall were already dead in the East Mountains. Here's a quote from the official police report. Quote, On March 4, 1996, Sergeant Nogales notified me of a violent crimes briefing at 0900 hours regarding multiple homicides, which had occurred at the Hollywood Video, located at 333 San Mateo Boulevard Southeast. The briefing was attended by various violent crimes and criminalistics personnel, Detective Ortiz, the case agent, advised all concerned personnel what had occurred at the Hollywood video store. And at the time, the briefing was conducted, a description of a possible vehicle that was involved was given. The vehicle was described as a black or dark-colored van with a marking on the rear passenger side window. The marking was described as a Confederate flag or an X. Detective Ortiz advised that three store employees had been murdered and that U.S. currency had been removed from the store. In addition, there were two subjects who had been inside the store immediately prior to the store's closure on March 3, 1996. These subjects had not stepped forward as potential witnesses. Detective Ortiz advised that other potential witnesses had been identified, but these two individuals, one male and one female, had not been identified. Detective Ortiz gave descriptions of both subjects, in addition, one of the victims, Zach Blacklock, was supposed to have been picked up by his grandparents after he got off work. His grandparents were not located at the video store. A description of their vehicle was also provided at the briefing. Myself and Sergeant Klingenpil were assigned to check several streets in the Southeast Heights for the van. Sergeant Klingenpil told me that he had seen a similar van in the 500 block of Texas Northeast. While he was in the area on an unrelated incident, Sergeant Klingenpil and myself proceeded to the 500 block of Texas Northeast to check the area for the van. 
We located a van which fit the general parameters of the initial description. I did, however, take note of a van in the parking lot at 7909 Marquette Northeast. This van was dark green in color, with tinted windows, and with a New Mexico license plate. There was an eagle in the rear passenger side window. The vehicle was checked through NCIC. No further action was taken regarding the van at that time. After checking other locations along Central Avenue, Sergeant Klingenpil and myself proceeded to head east on I-40. We headed towards the East Mountain area with the hope of spotting the van somewhere outside of Albuquerque city limits. After exiting I-40 eastbound, we proceeded on North 14, and three Bernalillo County Sheriff's Office vehicles proceeded ahead of us. All three of the vehicles had their emergency equipment engaged. As we passed the 10-mile marker on North 14, all three Bernalillo County Sheriff's Office vehicles pulled off to the side of the road. We stopped to assist the deputies. At that time, I observed a white two-door vehicle parked on the side of the road. The vehicle was partially concealed by several shrubs. The vehicle matched the description of the car driven by Mr. and Mrs. McDougall. I proceeded to speak with one of the officers, Deputy Rogers, who had already approached the vehicle. Deputy Rogers told me that he had been approached by a citizen who advised him that one of the vehicles involved in the Hollywood video incident was parked on the side of the road. Deputy Rogers proceeded to show me how he had approached the vehicle. I walked towards the vehicle and I could see that the keys were still in the ignition. Deputy Rogers had walked around the vehicle and obtained the license plate number. Deputy Rogers proceeded to check the license plate number through NCIC to verify who the owners of the vehicle were. Then, a citizen, Mr. Oliver, had contacted Bernalillo County Sheriff's Office, had remained at the scene. I was able to speak with him about what he had observed. Mr. Oliver told me that he had been driving out to the VA hospital at about 6 a.m. At that time, he heard a news broadcast over KOB radio regarding the incident. Upon returning from the VA hospital, he noticed a white vehicle parked off the side of the road. Mr. Oliver approached the vehicle and was able to see the license plate and verify it as the same one that he had heard on the broadcast earlier on the radio. Mr. Oliver stated that he was about 35 feet away from the vehicle when he observed the license plate. Mr. Oliver located a BCSO deputy and reported what he had seen. Mr. Oliver told me that he saw the vehicle on his way to the VA hospital earlier, around 8 a.m., but did not stop then. He decided to stop on the way back. Mr. Oliver remained at the scene until APD criminalistics personnel arrived to process the crime scene. Refer to his statement for further details. During my interview with Mr. Oliver, I had him show me exactly where he had driven his vehicle. Walking to the side of the dirt path, Mr. Oliver had driven his vehicle up. I observed how he had driven in behind the victim's vehicle. While I was speaking with Mr. Oliver, Sergeant Klingenpil advised me that he had located two bodies, a relatively short distance from the vehicle, positioned face down on the ground. The bodies appeared to be of an elderly couple. According to Sergeant Klingenpil, it appeared that the two bodies had several gunshot wounds. Sergeant Klingenpil proceeded to contact the Albuquerque Police Department main station by a telephone and advised Detective Ortiz of the situation. Sergeant Klingenpil and myself remained at the crime scene until approximately 1,800 hours. End quote. Police and city officials were feeling a ton of pressure to solve the case. The city was shaken by the gruesome events. Albuquerque citizens weren't used to this level of violence. For five people to be executed in one night was unheard of. It's scary if you really want to know the better term. Fear of it going on, going, or could it get worse? We've never had five people killed as a result of an armed robbery in the city of Albuquerque. Um, 
So we don't have an MO that matches this here. These crimes, like no others I've experienced in almost 20 years with the Albuquerque Police Department, have rocked the very foundation of this city. They didn't really have much to go on in terms of finding the suspects. There were some eyewitnesses that were in the store at the same time as the two suspects, and they gave a decent description of the male, but they had a difficult time identifying the female's description. Two sketches were drawn up and distributed throughout the city and on all major news media outlets. But days continued to pass with no real leads on who was responsible for the murderous robbery. The city even started to take donations for a reward fund, which grew to $100,000 in six days. And there had been no movement on any leads until the award was announced. And that's when an anonymous tip came in from Pueblo, Colorado. A man called police and said that he had information regarding the recent Hollywood video store murders. So detectives and the district attorney decided to drive to Pueblo to get his story. The man's name was John LaSalle. And it turns out that he was wanted by the Albuquerque police for an assault with a deadly weapon charge related to an incident that he had with a minor. He had been on the run. He was determined to not only use his knowledge to his advantage in order to get some leeway on his charges, as well as the warrant, but he also wanted to cash in on that giant reward. This individual was romantically involved with the female suspect, and he was friends with the male suspect. So as part of his deal, he would have to testify in court against both suspects. In exchange, he would not be charged with the assault and he would not have his parole revoked for using a gun in the assault. Police finally had their two suspects, and they were Shane Glenn Harrison and Esther Beckley. Let's take a quick break. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we're back. So let's look a little deeper at both of these individuals. Shane Glenn Harrison was from Tierce, New Mexico. He was adopted as an infant. No matter how much his family tried to show him love, he always felt separate from them. He was always an outsider, and he was known for causing trouble for his criminal activity and the fact that he was a pathological liar. Shane was a repeat offender who had been in and out of the criminal justice system for years. Prior to the robbery at the video store, he was in Grants, New Mexico at the state penitentiary serving a 10-year sentence for armed robbery. But he had recently been released from prison as part of the Community Corrections Act. And this is where the intricacies of that act are important. Shane had previous convictions for armed robbery and was therefore technically not eligible to be released early. Because if you remember, you cannot qualify if you've ever been arrested for a felony involving a weapon. But as we all know, New Mexico's not known for its ability to keep violent offenders off the streets, and the late 90s were no exception. In 1995, 
Shane was released from prison and given financial assistance to get on his feet. This happened despite the fact that his psychological profile from prison stated in no uncertain terms that Shane was prone to extreme violence, he had an obsession with guns, and he was diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder and bipolar disorder. His prison psychologist recommended that Shane not be released early and that he be held to the maximum possible sentence. He also recommended that Shane be placed in strict probation upon completion of his sentence. But none of this happened. Not only was he allowed to be released early, but he was also given one of the lightest forms of probation that there was at the time. That there was at the time. There were conditions to his release that included him not being allowed to possess any firearms, nor was he to commit any crimes. And he also had to stay free of drugs. So after his release, he moved into an apartment in Albuquerque and even secured a job at a local convenience store. But he was not satisfied with this job because he felt he was better than it. He really believed that the convenience store job was beneath him. So he created a resume that was completely fabricated in order to get a job at the local electric company known as P&M. He even lied about his felony record. And for a while, things were pretty good for Shane. But eventually, he was found out. And he was let go. He continued to pretend as if everything was okay and told everyone about what a great job he had at P&M. Like I said, he was known as a pathological liar. He quickly made friends with a guy he relied on for protection while in prison. And while they weren't friends in prison, they became fast friends after they were released. And this person was named John LaSalle. And John was also in a romantic relationship with another suspect, Esther Beckley. Let's look at Esther. Esther was serving five years for trafficking drugs in Hobbs and was released early. She found herself in Albuquerque around the same time as Shane. She needed to find work, so she applied to wait tables at Denny's on Coors Boulevard. She knew that she was a good waitress and she was able to get the job despite her felony conviction. She found herself falling for one of the men in the parole group that she was in. You see, it was against the rules to date other members, but she just couldn't help herself. She was smitten. And that member was John LaSalle. John was the connection between both of these suspects. And John claimed that he really didn't care for Esther and only used her for money. But she was in love with him and would do anything for him. So at this point, Shane started to get pretty desperate because after he lost his job, he really wasn't willing to work just anywhere. He wanted a, quote, good job. So he hatched a plan to get some money quick. He worked it out and decided that he would ask Esther to help him to carry out the plan. And he knew just the button to push for her. He told her that if she wanted to get money for John, he had the perfect way to do that for her. The two of them went to Walmart, purchased a BB gun that looked exactly like a pistol. They were going to target a Max Steak in the Rough restaurant in the Southeast Heights of Albuquerque. They decided that they would follow the manager to the bank and steal the deposit from him. Esther was willing to do this because she wanted to impress her boyfriend by giving him money. They also had inside information as well because Shane knew one of the employees. They started by casing the place and learning what the habits of the crew and the managers were. They tried to ambush the manager, but he didn't go to the bank like they expected. So they came back the next day and waited for the crew to leave. 
Esther then pretended like she was running away from an abusive boyfriend and convinced the manager to open the door for her so that she could use the phone. And that was when she held her gun on him and tied him up. Together, Shane and Esther robbed the restaurant and were able to get away with a little bit less than $1,000. Here's a quote from the New Mexico Supreme Court appeal that Shane filed. On February 23, 1996, a man and woman robbed a Mac Steak in the Rough restaurant in Albuquerque. An employee identified the woman as Beckley. Beckley testified that she and the defendant planned and carried out the robbery armed with a BB gun that looked like a 45 caliber gun. The employee did not see the male robber's face, but did hear a male's voice. Two witnesses, Liza Turner and John LaSalle, testified that the defendant had told each of them that he had robbed the restaurant. LaSalle lived with and dated Beckley. End quote. And then, Shane became even more brazen and brave and decided to buy some real guns. So he purchased a shotgun and a Tech 9 pistol. You may remember that one of the conditions of his release forbid him from possessing firearms. He was also forbidden from committing any crimes while on probation. But see, he was determined to get as much money as possible so that he didn't have to work. He set his sights on a new target, the Hollywood video store on San Mateo Boulevard. He convinced Esther to commit the robbery with him. He told her it would just be exactly like Max Steak in the Rough. They would get their money and leave without hurting anyone. But he lied. After the robbery, Esther was struggling to cope with what happened. She claimed she never wanted to murder anyone and that Shane was the mastermind of all of it. She was so riddled with guilt that she confessed everything to her boyfriend, John LaSalle. And that was how he learned the information which allowed him to turn them in to the police. Here's a quote from the police report about the processing of fingerprints at the video store. Quote, 102 latent impressions were found to contain sufficient ridge characteristics to make an identification. The listed subjects' inked fingerprint cards were obtained from the identification files of the Albuquerque Police Department, and elimination prints were provided and compared to those submitted latent impressions with the following identifications made. The identified latents were found to have been created by the same persons who created the ink world impressions as they appear on the fingerprint cards, identified as belonging to Shane Harrison, that was taken March 13, 1996, and March 14, 1996, and Esther C. Beckley, that was taken March 12, 1996, as well as by the victims that were indicated. End quote. The prints they found of the two suspects were only on his vehicle, and not in the store. But with the testimony of John, as well as other witnesses, police were able to create a strong case for the DA to prosecute. Ms. Beckley, you were charged with open charge of murder, five counts, tampering with evidence, kidnapping, five counts, armed robbery, two counts, conspiracy to commit murder, conspiracy to commit armed robbery, conspiracy to commit tampering with evidence. Have you had an opportunity to review the criminal complaint with your attorney or someone from your attorney's office? Potential penalties, do you waive a form, Mr. Cox? We would concur with that, then. That was one million? Mr. Ryan? Nothing to add at this time, Judge. It's clear that she's going to be held. If not on the bond, she'll be held on the parole violation. Well, I'm going to make it a secured bond of $5 million. 
the following conditions, not to possess firearms or dangerous weapons, not to violate any federal, state, or local criminal laws, notify the court of any change of address, not to leave the county of Burnley or state of New Mexico without prior court permission, maintain contact with your attorney, avoid all contact with the alleged victims. Well, Mr. Harrison, you are charged with murder open count. Open. Murder open charge five counts, tampering with evidence, kidnapping five counts, armed robbery two counts, conspiracy to commit murder, to commit murder, conspiracy to commit armed robbery, conspiracy to commit tampering with evidence. Have you had an opportunity to review the criminal complaint with your attorney or someone from your attorney's office to potential penalties and do you waive a formal reading? Waive a formal reading. He has your honor. Uh, I'm standing in today for Gary Mitchell. Find probable cause conditions of release. Mr. Harrison declines to name the bond is so. Uh, nothing more than I say. Okay, secured bond of $5 million, not to possess firearms or dangerous weapons, not to violate any federal, state, or local criminal laws, notify the court of any change of address, not to leave the county of Burnley, the state of New Mexico, without prior court permission, maintain contact with your attorney, avoid contact with anyone who may testify in this case, no contact with Esther Beckley. We have a motion for lineup. Have you had an opportunity yes, to do that? Yeah. Position on it? I assume that counsel will be committed to uh, represent uh, Mr. Harrison. Yes. Okay, I'm going to sign there. We also, the court also issues its order that Mr. Harrison is to remain at the Bernalillo County Detention Center and not be removed to any other jurisdiction. Police apprehended Esther and Shane, and both were uncooperative, and both denied having any involvement in the crime initially. But then police found the weapons in Shane's apartment and confirmed that those were the weapons that were used to execute the five victims. In court, both Beckley and John LaSalle testified against Shane. lady went over to the, him and down reached his hand over, put her arm around him. She shot her in the head. Then she shot the old man, then shot the lady. Went back to the apartment. They had some artifacts from the store, video store. To get a clipboard that he had touched. And, uh, so he got the clipboard, then went back to the apartment, and they viewed the video on his VCR. Beckley was given a plea deal in exchange for her testimony against Shane, and she received a 95-and-a-half-year sentence in return for her testimony. State of New Mexico versus Esther Carol Beckley. CR 962001. All right, I understand we have a change of plea. Yes, sir, we do. All right, I have in front of me a plea and disposition agreement, which has been entered into by the uh, state and the defendant. And uh, are you Mrs. Uh, Miss Esther Carol Beckley? Ms. Beckley, before I accept your plea in this matter, I want to advise you of your rights. And if I don't make myself clear, just say so. First of all, you realize you do not have to plead guilty in this case, that you have a right to a trial by jury before this court where the state would have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you committed this crime. You understand that? You understand that matter is set for May 5th, the, the trial in this particular case. You understand that you have certain constitutional rights, right to go to trial, right to be represented by counsel, right to confront the witnesses, to call witnesses on your own behalf. Sir, there's one detail that the technician wasn't in the car. He had it in the back of his pants. But other than that, the details. All right. Uh, 
Ms. Beckley, do you admit that these are the facts in this particular case? Can you uh, confirm that uh, that if uh, you were called, you would testify uh, as has as been stated by your counsel? Yes. Let me ask, uh, as I understand that you heard the, uh, when you were in the car with the McDougals, you heard the shots coming from uh, the Hollywood video? And did you uh, realize at that point that uh, Mr. Harrison had uh, shot the uh, people inside? Yes. And when you uh, left uh, in uh, the, well, when you got, when Mr. Harrison came out to the car that you were in, as I understand it, you uh, opened the door so he could get in the car? Hey. Is that's that not quite correct. She, Mr. Harrison, uh, asked Mrs. McDougall to open the door, and she said no. He then told Ms. Beckley to make her do that. At and that point, Ms. Beckley told Mrs. McDougall to open the car door, and she did. What did you think was going to happen at that point, Ms. Beckley? I didn't know. I wasn't sure. Pardon? I, I was... Shane told me to go um, try and get in the car with them and keep them from go leaving. I heard what sounded like somebody taking a hammer and beating it on concrete. I was starting to try and figure out what to do, and that's when Shane came running out of the store with the Tech-9 in his hand. They didn't have to kill them. They were just, they were just old people, just time up. By the time somebody found them, we could be long gone. I'm going to read you some of what she said in court now. From Harrison's appeal trial, quote, Beckley testified that in her presence, the defendant bought a Tech 9mm semi-automatic pistol and ammunition for the weapon. He also purchased a shotgun and ammunition. These weapons were used in the five murders. Beckley testified that the defendant kept the Tech 9, the shotgun, and two BB guns used in the restaurant robbery, as well as one purchased following the robbery, in a duffel bag. The police recovered the duffel bag containing the murder weapons and BB guns during a search of the defendant's apartment near the time of the defendant's arrest. Beckley testified that she and the defendant planned to rob the video store the night before the robbery actually took place. She testified that she and the defendant drove up to the store in the defendant's black car and saw an employee locking the door. An employee testified that a black car with two people drove up. She identified the defendant and stated that he came up to the doors, attempted to pull them open, and asked her to let him in. She refused, telling him that the store was closed. The employee testified that he became upset and continued to ask to be let into the store, but she did not let him in. Beckley testified that she and the defendant returned to the video store the following night at an earlier time. The last customer that was in the store the night of the robbery testified that he saw a white man about 25 to 30 years old and a white woman in the store together. The customer positively identified Esther Beckley in a lineup, but did not identify the defendant in a lineup. The customer was shown a picture of LaSalle, a 47-year-old black man, and testified that LaSalle was definitely not the man he saw in the store the night of the robbery. Beckley testified that after the last customer left the video store, she approached the manager, Mylin displayed her BB gun and forced her to go into the office at the back of the store in order to get the video surveillance tape, which would show her and the defendant in the store. Beckley stated that she retrieved the surveillance tape. 
Zachary Blacklock then entered the office and Beckley informed him that a robbery was taking place and instructed him not to move. Beckley testified that the defendant came to the back of the store with Jawanda Castillo. Beckley stated the defendant pulled his BB gun out and took Mylin to the front of the store to get into the safe, while Beckley stayed in the back with the other two employees. Zachary informed Beckley that his grandparents were going to pick him up. Beckley then saw a car drive up and testified the defendant told her to try to get into the car with the grandparents to prevent them from leaving. Beckley stated that she told the McDougals that Zachary and the manager were still busy, and she asked if she could join them in their car because she claimed her car heater did not work. She testified the McDougals were very friendly towards her. They let her into the car and spoke with her while they waited. Pauline McDougal was in the driver's seat, and George McDougal was in the passenger seat. Beckley stated that she could see into the store from the McDougal's car and that she saw the defendant and Mylin walking inside the store. She testified that she then heard gunshots, but the McDougals did not appear to react to the sounds. Beckley testified that the defendant ran out of the store carrying a plastic trash bag and the Tech-9. He threw the bag into his car, ran to Pauline McDougal's side of the grandparents' car, and told her to open the window. She complied. He told her to open the door. When it appeared that she would not do so, defendant instructed Beckley to force her to open the door. The defendant then instructed Beckley to exit the vehicle, and he got in the back seat. He told Beckley to follow them driving his car. Beckley testified that they drove into the mountains and that the defendant and the McDougals exited the car. She stated the defendant retrieved his shotgun from his car and walked with the McDougals into the trees. Beckley recounted that George McDougal turned to the defendant and that the defendant then shot him and Pauline McDougal several times with the shotgun. She testified that the defendant returned to the car, threw the shotgun into the car, and told her the McDougals were still making noise. The defendant then pulled the Tech-9 out of his pants, returned to the McDougals, and shot them multiple times with the Tech-9. Although Beckley testified at trial that the defendant shot the McDougals, she testified that she had previously told LaSalle that she fired the shotgun herself. Beckley testified that as the defendant drove his car away from the McDougals, his car bottomed out in a rut. A detective testified that a piece of the defendant's car was found at the McDougal murder scene. And then Shane's neighbor testified. Quote, A defendant's neighbor, who was out of town for part of the weekend of the murders, testified that he returned home on Saturday night and noticed that his black leather jacket was missing from his closet. But when he returned home on Sunday, the jacket had been returned. Beckley testified that defendant wore the neighbor's jacket during the robberies. Defendant had a key to the neighbor's apartment and admitted that he borrowed the jacket that weekend. The neighbor testified that the defendant, the defendant had previously told him that he knew of a place which could be robbed and that people could get hurt in the robbery. The neighbor was with the defendant when the defendant bought the shotgun used in the murders and the neighbor testified the defendant told him that he was buying the shotgun to protect himself. Defendant offered contrary testimony, stating that he bought the shotgun for John LaSalle. Then, John LaSalle, a prison acquaintance of the defendant, testified that the defendant told him prior to the murders, the next time he committed an armed robbery, he would not leave witnesses. A different acquaintance, a man who had been in the county jail with the defendant, testified that the defendant described a robbery, which he committed at the Los Arcos restaurant, and the defendant told him, that if he had shot the witnesses who had eventually called the police, he never would have been caught. Finally, Shane spoke. Defendant gave a statement to the police upon his arrest on March 12, 1996, which was admitted as evidence in the defendant's trial. 
Defendant also testified at trial, admitting that he had bought the shotgun and the Tech 9, which were used in the five murders and found in his apartment after his arrest. Defendant, in his statement to the police and in his testimony at trial, claimed that Beckley told him that Beckley and others committed the crimes. Defendant testified at trial that he had bought the guns for LaSalle and that Beckley took the guns. He testified that he lent his car and his neighbor's jacket to Beckley on the night of the crime, and he stayed home by himself. He claimed that Beckley came back to his apartment at approximately 5 a.m. on Sunday, March 3rd, and told him he should get rid of the jacket because it had blood on it. Defendant testified that Beckley told him to change the tires of his car because it was used in the murders. He stated that he did buy new tires. Defendant testified that he and another man drove to the mountains, and the defendant dug up the guns, which were in a black duffel bag, and took them back to his apartment. In 1998, a jury found the defendant guilty of 19 counts, but was unable to reach unanimous verdicts on three counts of murder for the deaths of Jawanda Castillo, Zachary Blacklock, and Mylan Deoti. The defendant was sentenced to two consecutive life terms, plus an additional 198 years, totaling a term of 258 years imprisonment. He appealed the ruling, and it went to the New Mexico Supreme Court. They denied his appeal. Here's what the Supreme Court said. Quote, We conclude that the trial court did not err by admitting LaSalle's testimony or the testimony of the polygraph expert. The trial court did not abuse its discretion by refusing to grant defendant's motions for mistrial and his motion to reopen the case. Defendant failed to demonstrate that defense counsel did not exercise the skill of a reasonably competent attorney and failed to meet his burden of showing that there is a reasonable probability that but for the counsel's deficient performance, the result of the trial would have been different. Therefore, we affirm defendant's convictions. And that is the horrible story of the Hollywood video massacre. Thanks for listening and stay safe, New Mexico. Normally I would work from 6 to 2. I walked up to the body and started moving the leg, and the body didn't move. And I looked up to the head, and on the left side I saw blood. And I saw another body in front of her, and the legs were crossed. He's sitting right next to the man with the... the Thanks for listening to True Consequences. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at True Consequences Pod and on Twitter at True Cons Pod. True Consequences is listener supported. If you'd like to support this one man show, please go to patreon.com slash true consequences. Thanks for listening and stay safe, New Mexico. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.